just a correction here. That, uh, almost one of the first scriptures is uh, 2 Samuel, it's 2 Samuel 21, 15 to 20. I think I've said on the tape uh, that it's 2 Samuel 20, but it's chapter 21. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Passing the Baton number 19. There are two parts to this study. One is on giants and the second part is on angels. And the date of the study is the 25th of October 2008. And the first question that we're going to address is, are there giants in the Bible? This is a most fascinating study. You will probably find many questions arising as we go on, but be patient, hopefully we'll find our answers. The Bible is our source of revelation. Wonderful things are contained within it. Without it, we'd have no idea, and our source of information would simply be speculation. My prayer is that your faith in the Word of God may be increased through this study, Perhaps you will see and understand things you have never thought about before. If there are giants in your life today, let your faith rise to know that Jesus has overcome every one of them and you have no need to fear in any way. I wonder if you've told anyone that you're coming today to a talk on giants. If you did, you probably had a very strange reaction because most people out there would think that giants were characters only found in fairy stories or mythology and nothing more. They would never accept that these could have been real people. We aren't talking about very tall men here. Apparently the tallest man recorded was 8 foot 11 and 3 quarters. What we're talking about is men 10 to 12 feet tall and more. If you're a Bible believer you won't read very far before you find that giants actually are found in the Bible. In fact, they have quite a high profile, if I can use the pun. If you look at some communities around the earth, you'll find all sorts of stories, supposedly mythological, of a time when God flooded the earth. There's a particular letter in the Chinese alphabet which depicts eight people in a boat on water. A friend of mine who went to China on mission was absolutely delighted to find this in his study of the language. You can go to the islands of Polynesia, Hawaii, to the steppes of Russia, to South America, to the Red Indians of North America, to Finland and various other places, and you will find isolated groups of people who have stories about the day that God sent a flood on the earth, where everyone was wiped out except for a man and his family who built a boat and took a few animals with them as well. So largely what people call myth and fairy story has some basis way back in fact. If you look at some of the cuneiform writings from ancient times you will see depicted a man, a woman and a serpent. All very interesting stuff. Who says the Bible isn't fact? Roger Price to whom I am indebted for this study says there are about 177 different versions of the tale about the flood. But if you put them all together, you find there are certain common features. Apparently in Hawaii they actually name the man, <coughs> excuse me, and his name is Nu. That's not bad, is it 
for Noah. They say that the rain lasted for 40 days and then the floods subsided. Pretty accurate. So there you have mythology that if you trace it back has its basis in fact. We saw this particularly when we looked at what lay behind the Christmas story that though steeped in mythology and paganism there was a basis in fact that the people who are revered did actually live at one time because Christmas is all about mother-son worship. If that has whetted your appetite you'll need to get the notes or CDs from a baton entitled It's a Cracker dated December 2007 where we explored the origins of the season. So what we're going to see today is that behind the stories of giants there really were giants in the land that Moses wanted the children of Israel to occupy. They really did feel like grasshoppers in the sight of these huge people. Incredibly, giants are mentioned in Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1 and 2 Samuel and Chronicles. They're also found in a somewhat hidden form in Job, Psalms, Proverbs and Isaiah. Here the Hebrew word for giant has been used but it's been translated as some other English word therefore it appears hidden. The name that is translated as giants in most passages in the Bible is the word Nephilim, N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M. This is the word translated giants. It comes from another Hebrew word, Naphal, N-A-P-H-A-L, which is the Hebrew word for to fall or to be cast down. When we look further into their roots, you'll see why they were given this name. The Nephilim as a group were a warlike people and the Bible speaks of them just as it speaks of any other group of people and gives us the names of the clans of the Nephilim or giants. There are two named groups. The Anakim, A-N-A-K-I-M, the tribe that came from a giant named Anak, and the Rephaim, R-E-P-H-A-I-M, these descended from a famous giant called Rapha. The I-M on the end is simply the Hebrew way of saying it's plural. Like Elohim, the Hebrew word for God, or Cherubim, the plural for Cherub. So the Anakim. And we find Anak in Numbers 13, verses 22, 28 and 33. Verse 22. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And verse 33, we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. Anak was very famous, <coughs> excuse me, and all his children and their children after them became known as the Anakim. These were the people the children of Israel met when they went on their famous reconnaissance into the land God had promised them. 
who caused Israel as a nation to have a nervous breakdown when they heard the report of the spies. But if you notice, the produce in the land was huge. It took two men to carry one bunch of grapes on a pole, verse 23. That's interesting, we may look at it another time. You'll note that here in brackets, in verse 22, it says, Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. The implication here is that as Hebron was a city built by the Anakim, so was Zoan in Egypt. There's a lot of speculation about the building of the pyramids in Egypt, and this causes us to wonder if in fact the giants had a hand in building of them, as they were obviously living in Egypt. Builders looking at the pyramids today wonder how any person could have built them. The base on which the pyramids are built is so level that we can only just equal it today, and we can only just about achieve the level of accuracy that existed back then, even with our modern technology. So these were the most amazing feats of engineering. The question poses itself, how did ordinary people move such vast blocks of limestone and how did they cut them so very accurately? There are two and a half million blocks of limestone in the three pyramids at Giza. The blocks are cut so accurately that when you look at them, the gaps between them are only one or two millimetres wide, and as I say, engineers today wonder how it was done. The quantity of limestone used, if dismantled, would build a wall around the entire outline of France, nine foot high and three foot thick if you are interested in such statistics. But that just gives you some idea of the vastness of the project. If you want to see an incredible photograph of them and you have a computer, look on Wikipedia, which is the free encyclopedia, and search pyramids and you will see these as they presently look at Giza. The photography is breathtaking. So it's worth considering that the pyramids were actually built by these giants. Let's look now at the other clan, the Rephaim, the second group of people. The name comes from the other famous giant whose name was Rapha. It's the Rephaims who supply us with the most famous giant of all, Goliath, whom David slew. Goliath was one of the descendants of this man, Rapha. Looking at the rest of the family, this is now after David has killed Goliath and he's seeking the brothers. Remember he had five smooth stones in his bag and he intended to take them all out. In 2 Samuel 20, 15 to 20, reading from verse 15. Now when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down and his servants with him. As they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishibenob, who was among the descendants of the giants, the weight of whose spear was three hundred shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, helped him, and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, that you may not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Now it came about after this that there was a war again with the Philistines at Gob. 
Then Sibakai, the Hushathakite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. And there was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Ehanan, the son of Jair Origim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war at Gath again, and there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. He also had been born to the giant. In each case, where the word giant is used in this passage, the word is actually Rapha. It is his name, showing that these are his descendants. And then in 1 Chronicles 24-8 Now it happened afterward that war broke out at Giza with the Philistines, at which time Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Sippai, another name for Saph, who was one of the sons of Rapha, and they were subdued. Again there was war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, with twenty-four fingers and toes, six on each hand, and six on each foot, and he also was born to Rapha. So when he defied or taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These were born to Rapha in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This is exactly the same incident, but we get more names of Goliath's brothers. As I said, you'll remember that when David killed Goliath, he took five smooth stones from the brook. His intention was not only to take out Goliath, but his four brothers as well. These scriptures show us the names of Goliath's three brothers, Ishibenob, 2 Samuel 20, verse 16, Saph, S-A-P-H, otherwise known as Sippai, which is the Hebrew word for Saph, verse 18, and Lami, 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. The fifth one isn't named, but is just mentioned as another brother. So David and his men completely wiped out the giants in the land and completed the job David had intended when he killed Goliath. Just for completeness and to see David's intention, let's look at the account of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 38-40. Reading from verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head. And he clothed him with armour, and David girded his sword over his armour and tried to walk, for he had, had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I haven't tested them, and David took them off. And he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, <coughs> excuse me, and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. From the number of stones in David's bag, we can establish he wanted to kill off the whole family if they showed up. So these are the two main groups of the Nephilim, the Anakim and the Rephaim. We do have a reference to three other groups of giants, but by the time we meet them, they've already died out. And to find these, we need to go back to Deuteronomy 2, 
verses 1 to 23. This is 40 years after the spies have gone into the land. The children of Israel have been wandering about in the desert and God decides to take them up the east side of Jordan. They're going to cross over into the land now, but he wants to show them one or two things. And one of the things he wants them to see is that the time that their fathers were afraid of the giants, people who weren't even Jews were killing them off. Reading here from the NIV, rather a long passage, but we need it. From verse 1 of Deuteronomy 2. Then we turned back and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea, as the Lord had directed me. For a long time we made our way round the hill country of Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You've made your way round this hill country long enough. Now turn north. Give the people these orders. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. You are to pay them in silver for f the food you eat and the water you drink. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He's watched over your journey through this vast desert. These forty years the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked anything. So we went on past our brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. We turned from the Araba road, which comes from Elath, and Ezion Geba and travelled along the desert road of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. The Emim used to live there, a people strong and numerous, and tall as the Anakites. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephaites, but the Moabites call them Hemites. Horites used to live in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out. They destroyed the Horites from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did in the land the Lord gave them as their possession. And the Lord said, Now get up and cross the Zered Valley. So we crossed the valley. Thirty-eight years passed from the time we left Kadesh Benir until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp as the Lord, Lord had sworn to them. The Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. Now when the last of these fighting men among the people had died, the Lord said to me, Today you are to pass by the region of Moab at Ar. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. That too was considered to be considered a land of the Rephites who used to live there but the Ammonites called them Zamzumites. 
They were a people strong and numerous and tall as the Anakites. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites, who drove them out and settled in their place. The Lord had done the same thing for the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They drove them out and have lived in their place to this day. And as for the Avites who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtarites coming out from Kaphtor destroyed them and settled in their place. You'll know that Moab and Ammon were the offspring of Lot through his two daughters. When they fled from Sodom and Gomorrah, when the Lord brought judgment on the, the cities, Lot settled in the hill country where no one else lived. And the girls got their father drunk, and each of them became pregnant through him. So Moab and Ammon were the result. But God honours these descendants of Lot with their own land, despite their beginning. So this account is after the 40 years of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness and we see that the giants had almost been killed off by the people who weren't even Israelites. This shows how great the unbelief was of 10 of the 12 spies who went into the promised land which was flowing with milk and honey. 10 brought back a bad report because of the giants in the land. You know that as a result of this bad report, even though the Lord had said he'd given the land to them, they did not go in and possess it until that generation had died out. And this portion of scripture shows that. There's such a lesson here for us. If the Lord says, go in and possess, you are well able, we must obey him, not our senses or we will find ourselves in a wilderness situation, wandering around for 40 years. Anyway, you can clearly see from this passage that the Moabites had destroyed the giants without God's help, but the Israelites wouldn't go in with God's help. Let's look at some more. Verse 12. The Horites used to live in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out. They destroyed the Horites from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did in the land that the Lord gave them for their possession. Again, they destroyed the giants. Verse 18 Today you are to pass by the region of Moab at Ar. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. That too was considered a land of the Rephites who used to live there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumites. The word Emim in verse 10 tells you something about who they were, because it can be translated as fear or terror. The word Zamzumim is the word for plotting or devising evil and it describes them very accurately. The word Nephilim, as we have seen, means to fall or to be cast down. It can also mean to overthrow. So these giants were known for filling people with terror, plotting or devising evil, and overthrowing others. Nice lot. In the days of Moses, these giants were almost dying out. There were only a few of them to begin with, and they were dying out very rapidly. 
So as we've seen by the days of David, they're just about finished. So just after this, in Deuteronomy 3, God takes Israel north. They still have these giants to destroy in the land before they go in there. By delaying their entry into the promised land, their problem didn't go away. They still had giants to fight. Problems don't go away just because you run away. And like the problems, the Israelites had to face these giants eventually, though a whole generation had to die out first before God would let them go in. There's only one giant left alive on the east side of Jordan and he's the second most famous giant and his name is Og. While I was studying this I wondered if that is where we get our word ogre from which means giant, troll, tyrant among other things, just a thought. So Deuteronomy 3 verses 1 to 3 Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan and Og, king of Bashan, came out to meet us in battle at Edri. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand and you shall do to him just as you did to Sihon king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon so the Lord our God delivered God Og also king of Bashan with all his people into our hand and we smote them until no survivor was left and verse 11 he was a giant alright look at this for only Og king of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits, that's thirteen feet six inches, and its width four cubits, that's six feet wide, by ordinary cubit. So we see that Og too is one of the remnant of the giants in the land. Joshua fifteen thirteen to 15 and here is something lovely. You'll remember <clears throat> that only Caleb and Joshua were willing to go in and take the land, including the giants. Now, more than 40 years later, Caleb gets his desire upon his enemies and kills the giants in the land. Caleb was 80 years old at this point, but here he is, setting his foot on the neck of his enemies. And verse 13 of Joshua 15 Now he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. And Caleb drove them out from there, three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. Here we have the destruction of the Anakim. Finally only a few remained and David killed them. That's a potted history of the giants. Having said that, we need to see whether there's any evidence outside of the Bible for the existence of giants. And this is very interesting. 
There was a man in the 19th century who published a book in 1867 entitled The Giant Cities of Bashan. His name was J. L. Porter. He was a Christian and an archaeologist and he decided to do a complete tour of the Holy Land and in particular the land of Bashan and there he found the most remarkable things of which he'd read in Deuteronomy 3, 4 and 5 which says These are the cities of the giants, sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates and bars, besides a great many unwalled towns. He hadn't believed that this was possible, that there were sixty cities. Such a statement, he says, seems all but incredible. Often when reading the passage I used to think that some strange mystery hung over it. But mysterious, incredible as it seemed on the spot with my own eyes, I have seen that it is literally true. In an extract from his book which I found on the free encyclopedia Wikipedia he says this Sixty walled cities are still traceable in a space of 308 square miles. The architecture is ponderous and massive. Solid walls four foot thick and stones one on the other without cement. The roofs enormous slabs of basaltic rock like iron. The doors and gates are of stone 18 inches thick secured by ponderous bars. The land bears still the appearance of having been called the land of giants under the giant og. I have more than once entered a deserted city in the evening, taken possession of a comfortable house and spent the night in peace. Many of the houses in the ancient cities of Bashan are perfect, as if only finished yesterday. The walls are sound, the roofs unbroken, and even the window shutters in their places. These ancient cities of Bashan probably contain the very oldest specimens of domestic architecture in the world. He saw ordinary houses which had living rooms 20 feet long and 10 feet tall. One house he went into was 25 feet long and 20 feet tall. He saw the most amazing blocks of stone cut out. They had roofs of solid rock across the top. Some of them were 12 foot long and 6 inches thick and they had been cut apparently by ordinary people and put on top of these houses. It was the most incredible sight. There was another man, Sir Henry Holworth, who wrote a book about the same area and he discovered skeletons 10 to 12 feet tall. He also found the suits of armour that went with them. He mentions these in his book The Mammoths and the Ice Age. And more recently John Whitcomb and Henry Morris wrote a book in 1961 about the Genesis Flood in which they show photographs of footprints preserved in stone that belonged to giants. So it's really interesting that the things that we're told in the Bible can be substantiated 
by archaeological findings. The more you dig, the more you find. Incidentally, the 60-walled cities have since been flattened by the warfare that has gone on around that area, so the only evidence we have of the cities of Bashan now is Mr. Porter's eyewitness account in his book. For the Bible believer, the Bible's good enough, but when we're talking to the unbeliever, it's quite fun to be able to prove these things historically and archaeologically. I just want to speak for a moment about a thing called the law of first mention. Some of you may know it. There's a thing called the law of first mention when we're studying the Bible and this simply means that you go back to where the subject was mentioned for the very first time. So where in the Bible do we first see mention of these people? As I said before, when we talk about giants we do not mean just very large men. Apart from their height, which was 10 to 12 feet, one of the distinguishing things about the giants was that they showed signs of being mutants. Many of them had six fingers and six toes. So where do we find their origins? The first undisputed reference to them is in the book of Genesis, as you would expect. They were still around at the time of Abraham. In Genesis 14, 5 and 6, here's a reference to various groups of giants. And in the fourteenth year of Chirdolaoma and the kings that were with him came and defeated Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim and the Zuzim in Ham and the Emim in Shaveth Kiriathaim and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran which is by the wilderness. We can recognise these names now as being groups of giants, but this doesn't tell us where they came from. To find the background to all this we need to go to Genesis 6, and this now becomes our base passage and we'll work from here. Genesis 6 then, verses 1 to 13. Let's just read the passage and then we'll look at the details. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. 
Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. In the first chapters of Genesis you have the creation of the earth, in Genesis 3 you have the fall of man, and when he fell God cursed him, the earth, and the serpent who had caused the downfall. And God said that an ordinary human being, one descended from Eve, would crush the head of the devil. The devil was going to be defeated by an ordinary human being. Satan heard that and he was looking for this seed to come from the woman. In chapter 4 he thought it was Abel and quickly incited Cain to raise up against Abel and kill him. He wanted to destroy this seed of the woman who was going to crush him. In Genesis 5 you find that the descendants of Adam, Adam start multiplying rapidly. To, so the devil now has got a problem. Mankind is increasing, he doesn't know which one it is that's going to crush him, so how is he going to stop himself being defeated? He comes up with a brilliant scheme. Knowing that God had said a human being is going to be the means by which he was going to be defeated, he set out to pollute the human race. He decided that he would infiltrate the human race so that no such thing as an ordinary human being existed anymore. If he could achieve that, no one could bring forth the Messiah. A brilliant plan, a cunning plan. But he only obtained partial success. In Genesis 6 you see the pollution of the earth by the agents of Satan, the fallen ones, the Nephilim, the fallen angels. Now you understand why they were such ruthless, vicious people and why they were called the fallen or cast down ones. These are the fallen angels who followed Satan when he rebelled against God. Revelation 12.4 and we see that a third of the angels chose to follow Satan when he fell. A little mathematics tells us that two thirds are on our side. That's good. Starting from verse 1 then. The daughters referred to here, this is Genesis 5, are ordinary human beings. The sons of God are angels. We know that because the Hebrew word for demonic beings is Bene Ha Elohim and that exact phrase is used only five times in the Bible. It's used here twice and in three other places. The three other places it's used, it's always in connection with angels without exception. Let's just have a look. Job 1 verse 6, 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them, Bene Ha Elohim, and Satan with them, a gathering of the angels. Job 2 verse 1 And again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Again we find the same phrase, a collection of angels. Job 38, 7 When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Same phrase again referring to the angels. There are other times when people are referred to as the son or sons of God but none of these refer to angelic beings. For instance Adam is called the son of God as is Israel and Jesus himself. But these references are specifically to Bene Ha Elohim, angelic beings and fallen ones at that. So this was the most devilish attack on the line of Jesus that was ever made. And God looks down and sees that mutants are coming forth. Babies were being born half human being and half demons. His son could not come forth from that. So God says, I'll put a time limit on how long before I move. And he gives the people time to stop this relationship between angels and humans. 120 years to repent before he judged. That does not mean, as some have said, that man's lifespan was 120 years that was the period of grace that God gave before he brought judgment. So, the Nephilim giants were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. If you look at Greek mythology, without exception they had a mother who was human and a father who was a small g, God. This is where it comes from. These men of renown, these mythological characters, were the giants of Genesis 6. Hercules, Orpheus and the like had their seed of fact in Genesis 6. These are the giants and they were real. Notice too that they were on the earth after the flood. Goliath was born after the flood. To find confirmation of all this we've got to understand something about angels and we have to look in the New Testament for that. We know really very little about angels except that they're normally invisible but they do have the ability and they are able to appear in a physical form. Remember, Satan appeared as a serpent in Eden. We have to conclude that it was because he could form himself into a serpent or anything else that took his fancy. We can also see angels depicted as flames of fire, sometimes as clouds. And Hebrews 13.1 says definitely that people have entertained angels unawares. So uh, be open. Remember too that Lot took in two men and they were angels. When Jesus came to speak to Abraham he had two men with him and they were angels.
The interesting thing is that when angels appear, they always appear in male form, never female. So let's have a look in the New Testament and see what we can find there. 1 Peter 3, 18-20 For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. In verse 19, the spirits he's referring to are the angels who were disobedient in the days of Noah, those which polluted and infiltrated humanity in Genesis 6. Remember, their main aim was to stop Jesus coming. So why was Jesus down there preaching or proclaiming to the spirits in prison? The word incidentally is caruso, which means to proclaim a victory. He was there to let them know he was the one they tried to stop coming. I imagine that he would have said something like, I've just called in to tell you, you lost. If you remember, when we looked at what happens when a person dies, the place that they were held in and still are held in is Tartarus. They're still there, awaiting judgment at the great white throne. And then the lake of fire. There's absolutely no way out for them. These verses are proof to us that these really were angels who mated with human women and brought forth half-human, half-demonic offspring, which are now held awaiting judgment. There's more proof in 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, that simply means the unseen state, and commits them, committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly there it is again he didn't spare the angels and the last passage you can probably guess where I'm going now is Jude 6 verse and 7 Verse 6, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds, under darkness, for judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. God's dealing here with apostate and rebellious individuals. In these two verses you have angels mentioned and Sodom and Gomorrah both mentioned at the same time. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the abomination God calls homosexuality. As far as he is concerned, every time 
His created order is violated. It is an abomination to him. So angels mating with humans is an abomination. Humans having sexual relations with an animal, bestiality, is an abomination. Likewise, men with men and women with women. All these are an abomination in God's sight. An abomination is any sin which mixes up men and women, animals and angels. Anywhere the categories of God are mixed up. The expression strange flesh is where in Sodom and Gomorrah the men wanted to have sexual relations with the angels that Lot had taken in. You remember that of course. So the sin was men wanting to have sexual relations with the angels. And this is the sin of these angels in Genesis 6. They actually mixed up the categories and started cohabiting with humans. In verse 6 the words their own domain and in some versions it says their first estate refers to their spiritual bodies. In those bodies they do not marry and they do not have sexual relationships and therefore no children. But Jude shows us that they left the realm of having a spiritual body and they short-circuited themselves to appear as human men and left their spiritual state and they became permanently in a human male body. They misused the ability they had to appear in human form. Everything Satan does is a perversion or a counterfeit. The next word, which is most interesting, is the one that says they abandoned their proper abode or in the King James it says they kept not their own habitation. This is a very interesting Greek word oikaterion. I'll spell it for you O-I-K-E-T-E-R-I-O-N The interesting thing about it is that it's only used twice in the New Testament here and in one other passage you see, the modern translations are all very well, but when you're really studying, you need to go back to the King James Version because most of the major concordances were compiled from this, and the modern translations lose their meaning sometimes. Okaterion is an old-fashioned word for a house, a place to live. It's in the other verse where it's used that we learn more about it. And the other verse is 2 Corinthians 5, or verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. For if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed within our dwelling from heaven. Dwelling there is Oikaterion, our habitation from heaven. The word Oikaterion talks about the form in which you live. So when it talks about the angels leaving their habitation, it's simply saying they left their angelic form and exchanged it for a human form. 
They had a spiritual body and they changed it into a physical body. They went in the opposite direction to us. We're in a physical body and we're going to go into a resurrection body. That's just an interesting bit of information. I hope you enjoyed it because I just love such things. We must examine everything, so I want to turn to a scripture that's found in Matthew where we see that it says angels do not have sexual relationships. We do need to look at all aspects of anything when we're studying things in depth. So Matthew 22 now and verse 30. And that says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. In this passage, the Sadducees are trying to catch Jesus out. The background is that they did not believe in the resurrection, and you can see this from the verses preceding verse 30, that they were constantly at loggerheads with the Pharisees who did. The main thing being talked about here is human beings in their resurrection body. When we get that body, there's a change. We will no longer be sexual beings. We won't be married to anyone other than Jesus and there will be no resurrection babies. The point here is that in your spiritual body, which is in your resurrection body, you will be like the angels who also have a spiritual body. That body will be able to pass through walls just like Jesus did when he appeared to the twelve in the upper room. It will be totally different from the flesh and blood one you have right now. So what Jesus is saying here is that angels don't marry in their spiritual bodies and they don't have baby angels. This is a parallelism. The angels who fell, remember, exchanged their spiritual bodies for physical ones and short-circuited themselves in an effort to pollute mankind and stop Jesus coming through a woman. So the fallen angels became sexual beings and were able to have children. They shouldn't have done. God didn't want them to. But that's what they did and giants were the result. Remember that even the angels had free will. This passage doesn't prove that angels can't have children. All it does is shows that it was not God's intention that they should, even if they had the ability to do so by becoming human. In a spiritual body, it wouldn't have been possible for them and it won't be possible for us either. I hope it hasn't confused you, but rather brought some light into what could have been a questionable area for you. So we see that it's perfectly possible that angels, when they left their spiritual bodies and appeared in human form, were able to procreate. The result was polluted individuals, and God had to destroy them. To finish then, we need to deal with how Goliath came about if all these uh, giants were killed in the flood. 